All right, now we ended last week uh, because we had to in typical fashion. I didn't get near as far as I would have liked to, but uh, I was starting to run out of the window in which people don't lose their attention span. And uh, where we stopped is right in the middle of a topical study. It's sort of introducing this topic and the subject of end times apostasy. And actually it was more in the beginning than it was in the middle. So I'm not going to give a lengthy introduction today. We're just going to touch a few of the major points as review again to get back up to speed before going forward. And uh, one of the things we discussed was a definition. Uh, in that passage that was just read in your hearing, Paul says there will come a falling away first. Uh, that falling away is a singular word in the Greek, apostasia. And uh, it's where we get our English word, apostasy. And uh, we want to begin with asking again, what does that word mean? Because if we don't get a handle on that, we can't really understand this topic at all. Again, it's from a preposition, apa, which means away from, and from the verb histemi, which means to stand. So the word means to stand away from something. That is very, very critical. It's the walking or the drifting or the running from a position that was formerly held. So when the word apostasy is spoken of, when we talk about end times apostasy being manifested, it's critical that we understand we are not talking about the state of the world in general, which will also deteriorate, by the way. Friends, sinners can't produce a utopia. Whether it's the Tower of Babel or the Third Reich or the New World Order or something else in the middle, man has tried over and over and over again to make some sort of utopic peace on earth. That's a satanic lie. That's what's behind the thrust of globalism today and joining everyone together, which of course is setting the stage for the coming man of sin and a one world ruler that will be filled with the devil himself. But friends, apostasy is talking about the conditions in churches. That passage, which we'll get to and exposit later on, that's not talking about out in the world. That's talking about a progressive sign in churches on a worldwide scale. Within the circles that verbally speak and use the name Jesus among the religious crowd, Apostasy describes the downward spiral throughout the church age that will affect churches on a worldwide scale. It affects preachers and teachers, various leaders of movements, Bible colleges and seminaries and entire denominations, which aren't biblical anyways, that's another discussion. And once again, I must emphasize, you and I cannot stop this phenomenon as a whole. What the Bible does consistently, and again, we will walk through this and illustrate it later on. We won't get there this morning. But what the Bible does do is tell the reactions of a godly person in the midst of it. Again, let me give the balancing truth. This will happen on a worldwide scale. It is happening. But it doesn't have to happen in this church. Apostasy is not a given here. Do you know when apostasy happens? When we let it. 
And you don't have to actively go after it. All you have to do is passively allow it. And it will come. Slowly at first, pick up speed until Christ removes this candlestick out of its place and we might still call ourselves a church and have a sign up front and have people sitting here every week and be miles away from anything the Holy Spirit's doing. Apostasy doesn't have to happen to us, but we can let it. Now, last time we started this topical message, which, by the way, does have 11 points. We got through one of them. They will not be all this long, I promise. Uh, but what we're trying to do is give a panoramic view. And I hope you understand the burden in my soul to illustrate uh, these first couple points really are, are geared towards helping us understand why we are emphasizing this at length. And I hope that we will see that as we go through. Now, just to review, point number one last week was the fact that apostasy is one of the major signs to the New Testament churches that this current age is drawing to a close. Now, again, we have to say there is no specific sign on the calendar that has to happen before the return of Christ. There's no one singular event. His return is imminent. But what we can see... I mentioned last week, sort of like birth pains before a baby is born, we can see many, many preparations of things that the Bible tells us is going to happen during the tribulation after the church is removed. In uh, 1948, the Jews returned to their land, the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, after almost 19 centuries in exile. Astounding miracle. She still sits in spiritual deadness, Ezekiel 37, right in the middle. She will not be converted as a nation until later on. Uh, we see the Jewish temple being prepared, the training of a priesthood, the preparation for a one-world currency, the preparation of globalism, and the world clamoring for a perfect ruler. All of that we can look at and say, okay, this is... These are birth pains that are coming, but again, all of those have to do primarily with the nation Israel. And you talk about end time signs that have to do directly with the church. One of the major signs is apostasy. This progressive falling away. Now, we spent a large amount of time in Matthew 13. We're not going to go to that specific passage again, but what it does describe in those parables is the conditions that will mark the church age as a whole. Those parables are teaching what it's going to look like progressively between the Jews' rejection of their Messiah and nailing Him to a cross and His second coming where He touches down on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. And this roughly 2,000-year period and increasing and growing in time, uh, Matthew 13 describes what that's going to look like we see the parable of the soils and these different responses to gospel truth. Uh, the parable of the leaven, that it's going to increasingly spread. Again, universally in the scriptures, especially to a Jew, leaven is not good. Leaven is bad. It doesn't mean don't eat yeast, but it was a, it was a, it was a type of sin, a picture of it. So when he said the woman's going to hide this yeast in a measure of meal and it's going to spread till the whole thing's leavened, he's talking about the spread of error within Christendom 
until you can barely discern what the thing was at the beginning. And again, the Lord said, when the Son of Man comes, shall he find faith on the earth? The parable of the mustard seed, this abnormally massive growth where birds come and lodge in it. And why do birds come lodge in a large tree? Food, safety, nurturing. And he's saying within this umbrella of professing Christianity, there's going to be legions of false satanic teachers that are going to be nurtured and hanging out in its branches and spreading their heresy from the inside. It's going to increase as the church age progresses. And tares in the wheat, genuine believers and phonies growing up side by side, many times not discernible until the last day. Now, apostasy, again, is not a one-time event on the calendar like the return of Christ will be. It's a progressive sign. It will increasingly get worse until it matches the description given in the New Testament. Let me say this, too. There have been periods of horrific persecution and treatments of Christians in history. There's been lots of those periods. Now, starting very early on, now, there still is that kind of persecution in places. There's been times where fake religion has dominated the world scene. Like during a thousand years of the Dark Ages, where a satanic institution posing as Christian slaughtered true Christians and hid the scriptures from them. But never in history has the umbrella of Christendom, loosely defined, included such a confusing web of error and deceit and satanic philosophy. You've heard me say it if you've been here very long. This is without question the most complicated age in the history of New Testament churches. And technology, while itself isn't a bad thing, it has aided in the spread of apostasy. Now that brings us to point number two. Why, why study this topic? Well, I mean, why, why preach on it? Why be so familiar with it? Well, I'll tell you why. Apostasy is an absolutely massive topic in the Bible. The whole Bible, but especially the New Testament. Now, I haven't done the counting myself. Now, it would take I don't know how long to do this. A sort of comparison. But I have this on good authority. And I, in fact, this, this astounded me. I knew this topic was prevalent. But this statistic blew my mind. Line up all the different topics in the New Testament. I mean, just what if we all took a piece of paper and just line up the different things the New Testament talks about? Number two on that list the second most prolific topic in the entire New Testament is apostasy. I mean, that alone should prove to us how utterly critical this is. Now, I wonder why it is today that you could spend years sitting and various things that call themselves churches and never even hear this mentioned. How come? Dude, 
that'll kill the party, man. That's part of it. It's not pleasant to talk about. I mean, human nature would rather hide when the storm clouds are approaching than stand up and face them, especially as an extreme minority. And in the last six decades, especially in so-called evangelicalism, the focus has been almost exclusively positive. Friends, again, biblical truth is like electricity. If you don't have positive and negative, you don't have proper conductivity. The focus has been on celebrating our areas of agreement rather than pinpointing our areas of disagreement. That's the hallmark idea behind so-called dialogue. Now that sounds really spiritual, doesn't it? That just sounds like we're playing nice. But what that does is get the attention away from earnestly contending for the faith, which is why doctrinal statements, if you pay attention, keep getting shorter and shorter and shorter. Let me put it this way. The lack of emphasis on the subject of apostasy is in itself evidence of widespread apostasy. I mean, another reason is it just gets weary dealing with these kinds of issues. I mean, I'll be honest. I get really tired of saying no. I get sick of vetting visiting speakers. I get sick of researching complicated topics like musical direction or trying to stay up to date on the various wolves that can totally destroy this flock, which are exponentially multiplying. And I think many just decide to lay down the sword and play nice. But if a shepherd lays down his weapons, the dialogue with wolves, is he really being nice? No. And see, here's the deal. If we're going to obey the whole counsel of God, we don't have the liberty of setting aside something that the Bible emphasizes so powerfully. It really doesn't matter if I like this topic or not. If I'm going to call myself a preacher, I'd better emphasize it. So this morning, we're just going to confine ourselves with this one direction. What we're going to do is just illustrate, not exhaustively, but we're going to attempt to illustrate how prolific this topic is in the New Testament. I hope your fingers are warmed up. We're going to do, we're going to do a lot of turning. Uh, you can start in Matthew 7. Turn to Matthew 7, and then I'm going to say something about the Old Testament, which we're not even going to go to this morning. I just want to say that the subject of apostasy frequently appears in the Old Testament also. Uh, true, there were no churches. Okay, but among the nation that God had called unto Himself as His kingdom of priests to the world, and a special treasure to Himself, the nation Israel, uh, you could look at the book of Judges, for instance, this continual cycle of a downward spiral. In fact, uh, Israel's entire history in the land until the captivity... I mean, if you drew a graph of their spiritual condition, starting with King David, what would it do? 
it would do this. Now there's Hyatt Josiah and Hezekiah and but the whole thing was heading down. In fact, the northern tribes started with the sin of Jeroboam and never recovered. They had zero good kings. The southern tribes had less than half of their kings were good kings. Now think of the first major instance. Exodus 32, you know the story. They'd been delivered miraculously from Egypt. They watched all these fake Pagan idols decimated, that's what the ten plagues did. Every one of the plagues was aimed at a fake god of the Egyptians, showing how utterly fake and powerless it was. They'd been delivered full of riches that had been given to them as God moved the hearts of the Egyptians to load them full of gold and jewels in their departure. And they leave there and they walk through the middle of the sea on dry land. They watch the sea close up and wipe out Pharaoh and his armies. They have the, the visible pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day guiding them. They come to Mount Sinai. They've been there for days. They've shaken in terror as God himself ascended. They've been given a written law, including Ten Commandments, beginning with no other gods and no graven images under penalty of death. And you would think, if any people group on earth is going to get the memo, it's going to be them. What happens in Exodus 32? <laughs> Less than 40 days. Up make us gods. As for this Moses, we don't know what happened to him. Here comes Aaron. And you see the blending of the name of Jehovah, which is what they use. Tomorrow's a feast to the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, complete with a golden cow. And you have the people of God rising up early to worship God, offering sacrifices to God, very, very zealous in their service to God, and he hates it. Because despite what they feel in their little hearts, they are completely disobeying what he has revealed about himself. And of course, he judges thousands of them on that day. Now in the New Testament... And again, we're just going to touch on these passages where this topic is, is mentioned as something to say about it, and this isn't even all of them. But beginning in Matthew 7, of course, the Lord's first major public sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, look how Matthew 7 ends. Verse 15, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening or savage wolves. He tells them, watch out. For those that, what does it mean to come in sheep's clothing? Look like, act like for a while, talk like, sound like a sheep. And he says, but on the inside, they're destructive wolves. And he says, watch out for them. He says you'll know them by their fruits. You'll know them not by their words primarily, although that becomes evident after a time, but you'll know by their life. A life that's lived in denial to the Jesus of the Bible, despite all their eloquence. Look at verse 21 to 23. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord. Now, in the Jewish mind, when you wanted to emphasize something, you know, we would put an exclamation point. In the Jewish mind, they'd say it twice. That was emphatic. Verily, verily, for instance. So here's these Lord, Lord, people. 
Oh, it's all about Jesus. I just love him so much. Don't you question what I believe. I'm a person of faith. How dare you tell me what I am? The Lord says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. The Lord says there's going to be a vast multitude that stands before him that thinks they belong to him. And he tells them, you don't. I never knew you. And then you get to the well-known story of the man building his house on a rock and building his house on the sand. And I just want to point this out. Who's that contrasting? It's not contrasting the believer with the world. You'll notice in that text, both of those people, the builder on the rock and the builder on the sand, heard the words of Christ. They listened. This is a delineation between those who actually were shirt tail followers. And he says there's these two that seem to build an impressive religious house, and people may look at it and say, wow, those are very similar, until the day of reality comes. The fake one comes crashing down. And the Lord says, I didn't know you. Oh, yeah, you spoke my name. But you didn't manifest Christianity by actually obeying what I say. Now, Matthew 13, we're not going to turn there. We're going to skip it. But let me just say something. We were there last week talking about those kingdom parables. But I want to point this out in passing. Again, Matthew's written primarily to the Jews, the king presenting himself. Even the Olivet Discourse, which is chapters 24 and 25, it jumps ahead to the tribulation events with a very, very Jewish focus. But in this kingly gospel directed to the Jew, there's a handful of church-related topics that are taught before the New Testament churches ever existed. In fact, in some of them, the word church or ecclesia is actually used. Matthew 16, Peter's historic confession. And the Lord says, upon this rock, speaking of himself, this bedrock, Petra, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So there's this promise there given to the churches before they existed that Jesus is the builder if we do things his way. Uh, Matthew 18, which I found it, we, we were there some time ago, I just find it astounding that he would teach on church discipline before there were even churches in existence. That was another topic he dealt with before the churches. What was the other? Matthew 13, apostasy. How leaven would progress in that age called the church age. And then, of course, the Great Commission. Those are the major church-related topics he dealt with in, in that gospel before there were churches. Now, of course, moving from the Gospels to the book of Acts, the first purely historical book, we're actually going to skip that one. I'll come back to it at the end, and you'll see why. But let's turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Now, what all was going on in Corinth? 1 Corinthians 15. 
If you're familiar with the text, you probably think of it as the resurrection chapter. But I'll point out this letter to Corinth is almost entirely corrective. There was confusion about a lot of things from uh, coming up with Christianized uh, heroes. I like Peter best and I like Paul. I like Apollos. There was confusion about communion, about spiritual gifts, about marriage, about suing other people in the church. There was also spreading error concerning the resurrection, which is why he's writing this chapter. Now, chapter 15, 1-4, he gives the gospel in a nutshell that Christ died according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He rose again according to the Scriptures. All of that's important. You have to learn about these things from the written Word of God, and the death, burial, and resurrection are all part of the gospel. But drop down to verse 12. Now, if Christ be preached that He rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? See, already in Corinth, there was this spreading error within the church, and there was a large growing contingency that was already denying the fact of bodily resurrection. And they were saying to people, well, when you go in the grave, that's it. Or your body's not coming out. There's no such thing as physical resurrection. Of course, Paul lays out the case. If there's no physical resurrection, if Christ isn't risen, we're doomed. This is a cruel joke. Everyone's going to hell. We have no hope and preaching is useless. In other words, Paul says there is no middle ground with resurrection deniers. If Christ is not raised from the dead, this is a sham. By the way, do you know many American seminaries are filled with professors that deny the resurrection? I'm going to grab some of these guys and say, why in the world are you in a seminary then? To preach a dead Savior? Go do something better. But He is risen. He is risen. Alright, turn to the book of Galatians. Now this letter is written to several churches in an entire region. Churches that Paul himself had personally planted. And into those churches comes these confused Jewish teachers telling them that they had to mix the law of Moses in with their Christianity to be truly spiritual. So the first four chapters of this letter are dealing with the apostasy of trying to mix Christianity with Judaism or legalism rightly defined. Now, unfortunately, that word is very little understood today. Usually when somebody calls somebody else a legalist, they don't have the foggiest idea what they're even talking about. Somebody who wants to take the Bible seriously and have standards and separate from evil, they say, oh, you're a legalist. <laughs> Could ask them, which Bible book deals specifically with legalism? And if you don't know the answer to that question, then why are you throwing around that term like you do? Legalism, in short, is an attempt to be saved or to be sanctified by way of law. 
In other words, it's saying, here's my list, and if I keep this, I'm spiritual. It's vastly different from being obedient to the Scriptures. But anyways, the urgency in this book, though, is hard to miss. There's no long, flowery introduction. He just gets right to brass tacks. Look at verse 6. I marvel, Paul's saying, I'm shocked that ye are so soon, that this happens so fast, removed from. Now that's very similar phonetically to the word apostasy. From him that called you unto the grace of Christ unto another gospel. For your own study purposes, you can compare the words another used. They're different Greek words, alas and heteros. He's saying you're moved to another gospel, which is not another of the same kind. It's a different one. And Paul's saying, I am absolutely shocked that this could happen so quickly that you could seem to turn your back on biblical grace and go after these true legalist false teachers. What's going on with you? Look at verse 7 to 9. Let's just clarify. <laughs> there be some that trouble you and would pervert, distort the gospel of Christ. These are people in these churches. And Paul says, though we are an angel from heaven, in other words, I don't care if you had a heavenly vision, vision or if Michael the archangel or if a different apostle says it, it doesn't matter. If they preach a different gospel to you, let them be anathema. Let them be sent to hell. Now that's strong language. Incredibly strong language. But he's illustrating the seriousness of this sort of error. And then he underscores it with an amazing example. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. What would you think in the first century if both of the two leading apostles came to town? And then what would you think if one of those leading apostles publicly lit up the other one in front of everybody there? I mean, might that stick in your mind? <laughs> Paul gives this example for a reason. He says, when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face, verse 11, because he was to be blamed. Because Peter's actions... In fact, what this is about is public association, which is a huge topic today. Peter was publicly associating with the group, and that association caused the gospel to be clouded. This wasn't a private one-on-one -on -one conversation. The damage had to be stopped in front of everybody. And so Paul stands up and lights into Peter... In front of the whole crowd, verse 14, I said unto Peter before them all. Essentially, if you as a Jew don't live like the Jews, why are you trying to get everybody else to live like the Jews, you hypocrite? Well, that's not very nice, Paul. Why would he do that? I'll tell you why. Because he wanted the gospel message protected. And it didn't matter if it was Peter that got in the way of that. He was going to deal with it. And so you have four chapters of dealing with the apostasy there. Jump ahead to the book of Colossians.
Colossians is dealing with apostasy concerning the person of Christ. There was a spreading error, particularly of denying the deity of Jesus, that he's fully God. Verses 15 to 18 in chapter 1, Christ is showing, or Paul is showing Christ is preeminent in creation and in sustaining. He says, by him were all things created. Verse 17, he's before all things, and by him all things consist. Attributes only belonging to God. Verses 19 to 23, he shows Christ is preeminent in redemption. Now notice verse 23 of chapter 1. If ye continue in the faith grounded and settled, and be not moved away, don't go apostate, from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made minister... And then uh, you go from there, and you see Christ is preeminent in the churches. In fact, verse 27 says, Christ in you, His omnipresence. But look at the warning picking up in chapter 2, verse 4. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. For though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the Spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ." As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. Look at verse 8. Beware, lest any man spoil you or ruin you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. He's saying beware of beguiling influences in churches that distort your view of who Jesus Christ really is. Jump ahead to 2 Thessalonians. Oh boy, were these people in a pickle. The second letter to Thessalonica, he's dealing with the apostasy concerning error in their understanding of Christ's second coming. You see, what had happened is false teachers had managed to convince them they missed the rapture. Most of you know something of that particular Bible doctrine and believe it. Hey, what if you walked in the doors here this morning and somehow on the way to church you became convinced you missed the rapture? Might that ruin your day? <laughs> I would. Because why? Now the church is obsolete. Now I'm looking for the Antichrist. Now I'm waiting for the stars to fall. Now I've got seven years, if I even live that long, I better go hide in the hills and sell everything and wait for Christ's second coming, right? That would mess you up. So Paul's writing to set them straight. Uh, chapter 2. We read some of this this morning. Now we beseech you, I beg you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together with Him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled. Okay, don't be rattled. Let's discuss this. Neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us. These fake teachers are writing letters pretending to be apostles. 
And Paul's saying, listen, as that the day of Christ is at hand, or already passed. He's saying, let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come except there come apostasia first. Now, that's talking about the complete picture. We will get to that passage. But what he's saying is, look, there's a certain order of things that has to happen here. There's a falling away, which is going to be a complete falling away when the church is raptured. After the church is removed, you're going to see the anti, or you're not going to see it, the, the Antichrist will be revealed. The Holy Spirit's indwelling presence will be gone. The Antichrist is going to sit himself in the temple, showing himself that he is God and demanding the world worship him. And he's saying, we're not there yet. Wrong time zone. Don't let it trouble you. How about the pastoral epistles, 1 and 2 Timothy? Flip ahead. 1 Timothy. Just in passing, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, look what that says. Paul besought or begged Timothy to abide at Ephesus when I went to Macedonia. Why? That thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Do you know truly spiritual leadership, one of the things they do is stop certain people from teaching? Timothy sent there by an apostle saying, those guys, you better stop their influence in the church. You better deal with it. How about chapter 4? Flip ahead to chapter 4. Again, a lot of these, some of these, I shouldn't say a lot, some of these passages we're going to exposit more at length. I just want to touch on them to illustrate this. 1 Timothy 4. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly. Okay, this is, he has something to say. There's a burden on the heart of the Holy Spirit. And what is he saying, Paul? That in the latter times, this is in the future, some shall depart, where? From the faith giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. People are going to come out of professing Christendom and actually believe demonic fake teaching. Look at verse 6. If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ. Paul's saying a good minister makes God's people remember that apostasy is coming. What are some other examples? Look at some of these statements. Chapter 5, verse 15, there's a discussion about widows. Verse 15 of chapter 5, for some are already turned aside after Satan. <laughs> They've gone back. Uh, chapter 6, verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred, they have erred what? From the faith. And pierced themselves through with many sorrows. There were some that went apostate because of their love of money. Jump ahead to 2 Timothy. Really, most of chapters 3 and 4. And now you see this verse over to my left on the board. That's, of course, the first three verses of chapter 3. But you can see that description ends with these words. Again, 
I hasten to repeat, that description on that board is not talking about the world. It's talking about a, pro pro a progressive picture of professing churches heading into the end times. This is what church people are going to increasingly look like. One of the ways you know that is what? Verse 5, having a form of godliness, making a profession of Christ, but denying the power thereof. From such turn away. I don't have time to give you my own personal story on that person in that particular verse, but those last four words I just read was one of the major influences for me leaving the Bible college I attended when I was newly saved that I thought was heaven on earth for a while. I couldn't get past that text. Anything that is producing that sort of shallow Christianity, you get away from. How about verse 13? Evil men and seducers shall, what are they going to do? They're going to wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So it's going to get worse. You have mainstream so-called preachers today saying things that would have shocked the conscience of the lost, let alone the churches 60 years ago. Now it's cool to cuss people out from the pulpit. It's cool to have drinking parties in the name of Jesus. It's cool to have naked punk bands performing in your church building like they did in Seattle. From such turn away. It's going to keep getting worse. How about chapter 4? He's telling Timothy what to do in the midst of apostasy. And this, this is one of the major passages we're going to go to later. Why though? Why be concerned? Look at verse 3 of chapter 4. For the time will come, this is in the future, when they will not endure sound doctrine. They won't put up with sound teaching, like teaching on apostasy. They can't stand it. They don't want to hear it. Let me tell you something. What I'm talking about this morning flies in the face of every single so-called church growth manual out there. It's not pleasant. It's not positive. And I'm speaking at length. Oh, those are big no-nos. But let me tell you something. God tells me to emphasize this. Pragmatism be hanged. The time's going to come. They're not going to endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust, they're going to heat themselves. Teachers having itching ears, there's going to be this widespread clamoring for preachers and preacherettes that tell them what they want to hear. Are we seeing that today? Oh boy, are we? How about Titus? Now, what's Titus told at the beginning? Let me just point this out. Chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. For there are many, again, this is in the church. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, especially Jews, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses. They destroy entire families with their error from inside the church. 
Paul's telling Titus, deal with it. How about verse 15? Under the pure, all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and believing is nothing pure. No sacred ground. We'll get to that one too later. But even their mind and conscience is defiled. Now look at verse 16. They profess that they know God. But in works, they deny Him. Being abominable and disobedient unto every good work, reprobate. And then he gives Titus a discussion on real grace in chapter 2, verse 11. What, what does biblical grace produce? Chapter 2, verse 11. And verse 12, it teaches us that. How about this? Biblical grace tells you there's a lot of things you should not do. Denying ungodliness and worldly lust, that means turning your back on those things and calling them what they are. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of Christ. True biblical grace produces sober-mindedness, separation from worldliness, and a looking for Christ's return. That's what grace does. That's what real grace does. I don't even have time to mention the specific names in those three letters where Paul says, watch out for him, and watch out for him, and he names them specifically, and he puts a Mr. Yuck sticker on them and their teaching and says, get away from them. How about Hebrews? Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Now Hebrews, an unknown writer, it may say in your Bible, written by the Apostle Paul, we really don't know that, it's assumed that. But whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, what's going on in the book of Hebrews? It's it's written to Jewish believers. And these Jewish believers were tempted to throw in the towel and turn back because of the persecution they were facing from other Jews. They were getting to the point of saying, is it even worth it? I'm getting treated so terribly by my own countrymen, I've about had enough. Or maybe they were going to at least keep their faith on the down low and go along with Judaism so as not to offend. And so the writer of this epistle demonstrates Christ is better than the angels. They worship Him. Christ is better than Moses. He created Moses. Christ is better than the Levitical priesthood because His sacrifice was once for all. Christ is better than the law because He's a mediator of a better covenant. In other words... The, one of the major points of the letter is there's much more to be gained with Christ than to be lost with Judaism. Now, chapter 10, beginning in verse 26. Some have looked at this and thought, well, you can lose your salvation. No, that's not what's in view, but there is a sober warning. For if we sin willfully, after that we've received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Listen to this one. Of how much sorer, how much worse punishment. Suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he is sanctified an unholy thing and done 
despite unto the spirit of grace. So he's saying it was bad enough to be stoned under the law just by two or three people calling you guilty, but God thinks it's much worse, somebody who's been under conviction of sin, who's understood the gospel, who's seen clearly the delineation between heaven and hell, and then turned his back and rejected the gospel and went back. He's basically given a warning about being a stony ground hearer. It's not enough to just know gospel truth or to sit in churches or recite gospel fact. He's saying, do you understand? If you are one who is lost and dead in your sins, sitting in a church, hell will be hotter for you than somebody who's never heard. That's serious stuff. Verse 35, Cast not away therefore your confidence which hath grace, great recompense of reward. He's saying, look, get your eyes on eternity. Don't go back. For ye have need of patience after ye have done the will of God that ye might receive the promise. For yet a little while. And he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. And then he comforts them, saying, but we are not of them who draw back under perdition, but them that believe to the saving of the soul. By the way, that's the backdrop of this faith chapter in chapter 11. Why is he, why is he giving this catalog of believers and how they live? He's encouraging those that are thinking about going back. He's telling them, keep going. How about 2 Peter? We are getting close, I promise. Second Peter. Of course, this is Peter's swan song. He's about to be martyred. He knows it. Now, what, what would a dying man like Peter, what would he emphasize in his last letter? Well, he begins by emphasizing the great and precious promises of God and the need of you and I to put in the work necessary to grow in Christ. Verse 10, make your calling and election sure. Make sure you actually are a Christian. And then he goes into the infinite wisdom of trusting and obeying the Word of God. In other words, look, th this book, this written Word, he says, is more trustworthy than the voice I heard on the Mount of Transfiguration. You have a written Bible in your lap, you trust it. It's not the product of men's imagination. It's not the product of eating a bad pizza one night and writing something down that you're calling the Word of God. He's saying this book is God-breathed. Now, look at chapter 2. But, in contrast, there were false prophets also among the people, talking about Israel, even as there shall be false teachers. Where? Among you. What are they going to do? Who privily, secretly, shall bring in damnable heresies, that's denying the actual gospel, while being in churches teaching about Jesus. Even denying the Lord that bought them. And you've got to understand, this doesn't mean they say, I hate Christ. They're teaching a different Jesus. And what's going to happen, verse 2? Many shall follow their pernicious ways, destructive ways. And what's going to happen? By way of truth. By way of truth. The way of truth shall be evil spoken of. Their fake, phony Christian followers are going to turn and actually malign and hate the guts of the real Christians. 
And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you. In other words, through their oh-so-silky words and charismatic personality and smiley Joel Osteen smile, they're going to fleece God's sheep and make merchandise of you and lead thousands of people to hell. All in the name of Christianity. And the rest of that chapter is talking about their terrible judgment. How about chapter 3? He goes from teachers to conditions. And again, we see this in the world. But his overall context is warning about this growing within Christendom. Verse 3, knowing this first, there shall come in the last days, again, this is future, scoffers. Within churches, there are going to come those who mock, who walk after their own lusts. In other words, I do what I feel. I listen to what I want. I, I go to the preachers that I like. I go to the church that makes me comfortable. It's all about me. They walk in the door and they plop down and they say, here I am. Now bless me. Welcome to American Christendom. They're going to walk after their own lusts. They're going to deny the worldwide flood. They're going to deny the second coming of Christ. Again, do we see that? It's everywhere. It's everywhere. 1 John. 1 John 2. You know, uh, the book of 1 John was written to combat the apostasy of Gnosticism, which denied that Christ is physically human. Gnostics believe that matter was intrinsically evil, and they come into the Christian churches and they teach Jesus could not have become man because man himself, actual physical flesh, is bad. Therefore, Jesus never had a real physical body. That's why he starts off with that, that's, that's, that which we've seen and we've handled and touched. That's why he's saying that. And uh, written by the apostle who actually laid on the Lord's chest at the Last Supper. Those are powerful words. Now in chapter 2, look what John says, verse 18. Little children, it is the last time. Again, the last days started back then, but they're increasing in severity. Ye have heard that Antichrist shall come. That's the Antichrist. Even now there are many Antichrists. Whereby we know it's the last time. Look at verse 19. Where did these Antichrists, plural, come from? They went out from us but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us, but they went out that they might be manifested that they were not all of us. John says many, many antichrists, lower a, lowercase a, plural, have come out from the churches. Verse 4, believe not every spirit. He's talking about testing teachers. Try the spirits whether they're of God, because many, many false prophets are gone out into the world. Second John will skip, but it deals with a similar error where he talks about many deceivers are entered into the world and those that deny that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh as Antichrist. Again, these people taught Jesus. They just taught a fake Jesus. And John says, have nothing to do with them. Don't bid them Godspeed. Don't invite them into your house. Don't tell them I hope your ministry goes well because they're emissaries of the devil. Jude, the Lord's half-brother, 
Verse 3, he explains his burden. I wanted to write an evangelistic epistle. I wanted to talk about the common salvation. But he says, It was necessary, needful, for me to write unto you, and to exhort you to light a fire unto you, that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. He said, I needed to encourage you to stand up, pull out your sword, and defend the faith. Why? Why, Jude? Verse 4, For there are certain men crept in. Crept in where? Crept into the churches. Crept in unawares. Nobody knows they're there. Who were before of old, ordained to this condemnation. Now look at this description. Turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. So in other words, they're not teaching that grace produces sober-mindedness, separation from evil, and a looking for Christ's return. They're teaching that grace is a license to sin and live how you want because God is oh so gracious. That's everywhere today too. And then the rest of that book is the judgment that's going to be poured out on these phonies. How about the book of Revelation? Uh, the seven churches that existed in Asia Minor at the end of that first century, uh, this book was written to them, but just look at some of the description. We already know the flagship church, Ephesus, had been told they'd lost their first love. Now keep in mind, this is still while an apostle is living. I mean, these churches possibly had people in them that had actually seen Christ on earth. It's possible while he'd been alive here. And by the end of the first century, look at some of the words that have to be spoken. Uh, chapter 2, verse 14. Speaking to Pergamos. I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and do commit Fornication, so hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. So there were those that were holding horrid heresies, and nobody was dealing with it. All right, chapter 2, verse 20, going on to Thyatira. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants, to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols." Uh, chapter 3, verse 1 to Sardis. You have a name that you're living and you are dead. Chapter 3, verse 15. What a rebuke to Laodicea. He tells him you're not hot or cold. I will spew or vomit thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. That was how far the drift had occurred by the end of the first century with John still alive in Asia Minor. Shocking. We'll not turn there for sake of time, but Revelation 17, most of you know the picture. John looks with horror at this woman riding the beast. Who is that woman? She is apostate religion. She is professing Christianity without the Holy Spirit. She is a utilitarian, pragmatic shell of religion without any sort of subjection to the God of the Bible. 
And she's drunken with the blood of the saints because let me tell you something, the cruelest persecution in history has been religion without the Holy Spirit. That's been the worst. And here she is writing the Antichrist, actually using or writing the Antichrist to power. And of course, he turns to devour her. You might say that's the end of apostate religion. Now turn back to the book of Acts. This is going to be our last passage. I've already mentioned Paul and Peter. And uh, it, is, it is quite significant if you think about it. It wasn't like they wrote their last epistles and then just happened to die. Second Peter and Second Timothy, respectively, were the last two letters penned by these two men, and they knew they were about to be martyred. I find it amazing. Two-thirds of Peter's letter is about apostasy. Paul's last letter Two out of the four chapters are about apostasy. Now look what happens here in Acts 20. Acts chapter 20, verse 17. <clears throat> Paul is at Miletus, then he calls, he couldn't make it to Ephesus, so he calls the elders or the the pastors from that local church. He calls them to meet with them. It's a sober meeting. He tells them in verse 25 that they will see his face no more. He's telling them this is the last time I will see you on this earth, so listen up. And what is he going to tell them in this last meeting, verse 27, he says, I've not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. I told you everything, and I emphasized what God emphasizes. Now look at the word to these Ephesian pastors. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock, over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God. Overseers is, uh, that's the Greek word where we get the word bishop. Feed is poimento or poimen pastor. So he's saying you need to, one emphasizes authority, the other emphasizes shepherding. He's saying you need to protect and feed God's people. Why? Verse 29. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock as if that wasn't enough, also of your own selves shall men arise. There's going to be pastors in this church, he's telling them, that are going to arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. How, how heavy of a burden was this on Paul? Look at verse 31. Therefore watch, keep your eyes open, and remember this. By the space of three years, I ceased not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Paul spent three years with tears running down his face, pleading with those men 
to believe Him. That apostasy is real. And it's coming. And it's going to be ugly. You know, uh, we're going to talk about notable happenings in the 20th century. In relation to this topic, we'll get to that. But uh, there's a lot of negative things that happened there, but there was some positive. And one of the very good things that happened in the 20th century was this explosion of a return to literal Bible interpretation, to dispensational theology, to just consistently, literally taking the Bible as it's written, which of course leads to a distinction uh, between Israel and the church, etc. Uh, that was one of the forces, I believe, that led to them even getting their land back in 1948. But anyway, out of that movement came a whole lot of wonderful churches and seminaries and colleges and institutes and missionaries sent out, and a lot of good books were produced. And one of the prominent names from that era was Lewis Sperry Schaefer. You may have heard his name. And his systematic theology was a landmark in that it was the first systematic theology that had been published that was consistently literal. There had been teachers like that in the past, many of them, but nobody had ever written a complete systematic theology like that. And by the way, I think he does an excellent job of teaching both sovereignty and free will. Now, he was the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary, which trained many good men. Uh, but fast forward to 1952, and the man that succeeded him as president at Dallas Seminary was Dr. John Walvoord. Now, let me say this. If you're looking for good books for your personal library, get John Walvoord's books. A tremendous writer. Um, books like the Prophecy Knowledge Handbook. I think it's been changed to every prophecy in the Bible. A succinct explanation from a literal interpretation of every single prophecy in Scripture, where it fits in the overall picture. And he'll frankly say some he doesn't know. Good books. Major Bible themes he co-authored co with Schaefer. Many others. But during Walvoord's tenure at the seminary, he witnessed the rapid decline of that institution. And toward the end of his life, he became very aware that the subject of apostasy had been terribly neglected from the curriculum and training these ministers of the gospel. And he lived long enough to see where that led. Now approaching his death, his health became so weak, they would wheel him in, and he could only speak for about eight minutes. Now keep in mind, this guy at the time was regarded by many as the leading authority in the world on subjects like the rapture and the millennial kingdom and Bible prophecy in general and the second coming of Christ. And people would wonder, what's he going to use these eight moments or eight minutes to speak about? And all he ever would preach about at the end was apostasy. I mean, this tired old man, tears running down his face, seeing these black storm clouds approaching, kind of like Paul, warning about this topic night and day with tears. 
And one of the things Walverd would say, I'm paraphrasing, but he would say, if you love the Word of God, then you will want to learn about apostasy because of how prominent of a place it holds in the Scriptures. Now, the sad irony today is that all of the defections I have just touched on, denial of the resurrection, denial of Christ's deity, redefining God, having damaging public associations, denial of Christ's humanity, denial of the salvation by grace through faith alone, denial of the sufficiency of the written word of God and the doctrine of inspiration, error concerning end times events, the formation of an expedient Christianity in order to placate a God-hating world, and redefining grace as a license to sin. All of those and more, far from being pinpointed and warned about, they've become the dominant positions under this mustard seed turned sequoia tree of Christendom. I mean, you walk into the religious bookstore or pick up these book-selling magazines and you will see huge amounts of that sort of thing sprinkled in there. Now, let me close by asking this. Do you have ears this morning to hear? You may not like it. Do you have ears to hear about a subject that's so heavily emphasized in the New Testament? Or are you in your heart saying, thumbs down, I got this figured out, we're all okay? Friends, your answer to that question determines the trajectory of the rest of your Christian existence. It's that serious. Are you saved this morning? Do you know Christ? Once again, what we've talked about applies really is only a help to those who are really in Christ. Not, oh, I've prayed a prayer, I sat in church, or I got dunked. You know, the devils actually believe God exists. The devils know the gospel. In fact, Satan knows the Bible pretty well. He just doesn't know it correctly. Have you actually ever understood what a monster of evil you are? Have you actually come to the place where you stop making excuses and saying, well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so? Have you ever seen yourself in comparison to God as so utterly corrupt that if there was one sinner on earth and that was you, that hell would need to be created for you to suffer because of how terribly you've offended a holy God? That's true. And have you ever realized you can do nothing to save yourself? Nothing. Nothing. That price has been paid in full. The last blood God would ever need has been shed on that cross, and the Lamb, the Son of God, was slain. And you need to stop trusting in yourself and in religion and everything else and turn to Christ alone and take His free gift of salvation. Have you done that? You can. The door's open for now, but He'll not force you through. Let's pray. Lord, Thank you for this sobering topic, but yet we thank you because 
Your word is truth. And I pray you'd help us to be true listeners. Help us to get a good handle on this. Not just to get the information, but to be prepared for this warfare called the Christian life. Lord, we recognize that rest primarily comes beyond this life. That if we're followers of Jesus, trials and tribulations and war is going to come. And we don't need to go looking for it. It's going to come to us. Help us to be well-equipped soldiers that we may bring you glory during this vapor called life. In Jesus' name, amen.